where are the opportunities, but more importantly, the challenges for innovation in health informatics? And what are the common mistakes that entrepreneurs make with things like electronic health records? My very, very special guest today is Dr. Ian McNichol, former GP and health informatics expert and also past co-chair of Open Air International. Uh, welcome to day 76 of my 90-day challenge. I can't wait. This is almost done. Another couple, you know, 10 days or whatever it is, 14 days. And I'm sharing my personal journey into the world of health innovation and entrepreneurship because of my personal experience, not only as a physician, but also my own health experience. And alongside that, I'm sharing and highlighting the stories of innovators, entrepreneurs from around the world who maybe like you, they've had a personal experience of their own with their own healthcare, that of a loved one, and they decided to pivot into the health sector. So many of these are actually from outside the world of, of healthcare. Let's get started. And uh, by the way, I'm Beirut. I didn't introduce myself. I am Beirut. I'm a public health doctor here in the UK. And uh, my goal is to help you, the entrepreneur, to create a healthier, happier world through your ventures. And so it all starts at home with our own health and well-being. We often forget that. So do check out the past episodes where we cover health topics for entrepreneurs too. Look, um, I have to put out a disclaimer, although the main focus of today is not about health of entrepreneurs, but if we do talk about health issues, do treat this as information only and speak with your licensed doctor. Let's get straight to my guest, Dr. Ian McNichol. Uh, welcome, Ian. Hi, thank you, Rose. It's a real pleasure to have you because you've got tremendous experience, but let's just rewind and just go back to when you decided to launch into the world of health informatics. What was the inspiration? Yeah, it's interesting. So when I was at school um, back in the 70s, uh, my final year at school, we did have access to computers, but the computer was a giant box which lived in a, a, an associated college out the back. And the only people that were interested in these were mathematicians, physicists, or aspiring physicists and economists. And I was none of those. Um, I was a kind of soft scientist, found myself into, into medicine as being a good fit and couldn't see what these things had anything to do with, uh, with my life or my future. Uh, I'd done a little bit of hacking about with uh, electronics, but it wasn't really a you know major hacker in that world. And then some way through med school, I started to see, I think I saw a, a, a TV program, which was on word processing, which literally did not exist until around that time. And I started to think, I'm a terrible typist. Actually, the ability just to correct my spellings without tipex and et cetera, et cetera, that's starting to get interesting. Um, and, but even then, I actually worked on a ward, my, as a final medical student, I worked on a ward that had a quite interesting little computer system at the time. I had no interest at all. I, I just didn't see it uh, as being relevant in my life uh, and went and worked somewhere else. When I became a junior doctor, uh, I realised just how much paperwork was involved even then. Uh, you know, writing lab tests, uh, all the stuff, records, blah, blah, blah. And my friend who was doing uh, computer studies at, at university, he had sort of early PC magazines lying around. And I thought, you know what, there's gonna be there's something in this. Um, so when I was a, uh, a junior doc in Inverness, uh, they were building the new hospital and they, um, they were trying to get us to go over and give radioisotope injections for people who needed scans. It was a bit of a walk from the old hospital to the new one. 
the junior docs didn't like doing it very much, it interrupted their day. And I said, look, you've got an apple in your lab, haven't you? I said, okay, call me first, as long as I get to use your apple after hours. So I started to teach myself that way, uh, you know, uh, evenings on call and some not evenings on call. Uh, and then as I did my GP training, realized that this it was going to be very useful, got seriously interested and got a post after finished my training, spent a year as a research fellow with a, a project called GPASS, which is a publicly funded GP system. Uh, so in Scotland, things were quite different from what was happening in England. We had essentially a public sector GP system, which had originally been a hobbyist system from a, a local GP. It would have been open source uh, if open source really had existed at that time. And that's where I cut my teeth. Uh, then got uh, completely accidentally became essentially an entrepreneur. Um, the guy who built that GP system decided to build some accountancy and payroll software for GPs. By that stage, I sort of taught myself to do programming to a reasonable extent. He asked for a bit of help and I ended up writing the accounting software, turned that into a little company, uh, which we, we at one point we had 3000 GP practices using our stuff. Um, so I did that while I was still a GP for a number of years, and then gave up general practice, eventually sold that company to uh, another. Uh, but, you know, I always wanted to get back into the health IT space. Uh, that was, you know, I, I found it intellectually really challenging and interesting. So that was my journey. Um, through that, around 15, 20 years ago, I was trying to build something. I was trying to solve a problem around how to get much easier interaction uh, as a GP with my computer system. I was finding it a bit frustrating, trying to build some different user interfaces um, and thought I should do this open source, was casting around for some you know, data models that I could play with. Uh, I wasn't really interested in data models and came across this open air thing, open EHR. Didn't understand it at all. Completely confused me and I dropped it and then got intrigued and went back. And that way I kind of got sucked into this whole world of data modeling and information modeling, which is still what I, what I do today. Nice. So that was me. Um, accidental computer interest, accidental entrepreneur, um, accidental everything. But it's probably the best way to be, to be honest. Agree. It's all based on the need. And I, while we're there, actually, do you want to just share a bit more about what Open Air is about? I have put a link in the description below for those who might be interested. But how can it? What's the problem you're solving? Uh, where do you work? But more importantly, as well, how could you help entrepreneurs and innovators who might be watching or listening? Yeah. So the thing that I learned, particularly as I moved out of GP system development, was that healthcare data is incredibly complex. Uh, it's messy. Uh, we've just been doing some work in, in, with, with colleagues in Sweden who've got, who in Sweden have nine different variations of their pediatric early warning score. There's probably another six or seven in the UK and it's just being redeveloped for a new version of that. And that's just one warning score. Uh, we're also doing some work with um, care home data models and the variability and variation is just immense. And that's just, that's just in, you know, within one specialty or one tiny domain. The breadth of complexity is enormous. And part of the problem is that when people come into this space from outside, very smart people, they just do not understand how complex it is. 
uh, you know, they've got usually one keen clinician like me or yourself who goes, look, we've got a great idea. We need some help from tech guys. Or maybe they've got some great new kit that they want to play with or a new algorithm. Uh, and they work with us and we give them all our advice. We give them their knowledge about what's a blood pressure or what's a pulse rate or what's an allergy. And they build all that and they say, great. And then they go to the next crew, the next department, the next uh, specialty, and they go, we don't do it that way. Um, and then they go and they say, oh, well, hang on a minute. Did you think about uh, audit trails? Did you think about terminology? What's terminology? What, what terminology to use? Well, there's a choice of about six. Everybody says to use SNOMED, but not everybody's using SNOMED. So you, they, uh, people just do not understand. They can't believe the mess that we work with. And some of it is self-inflicted. It's because we as, well, not just doctors, but care, care professionals generally are very empowered to do their own thing. You know, we are encouraged to experiment. We're encouraged to tweak the score or tweak the algorithm or tweak whatever it is, you know, do, do things a little bit differently from the next word. We're incredibly empowered compared to other equivalent professionals. That's a good thing. It's the lifeblood of innovation, but of course it's a killer for tech and it's a killer for sharing data uh, across tech. So that, and that problem still remains. Um, so how do we get the, the knowledge out of heads of people like you and me speaking as a, as a clinician when it's so very very detailed specialized and just plain old messy and how, once we've got it out how do we try to align it because of course if we don't align the data at some level sharing that information between applications uh, between services uh, running across a patient pathway or condition becomes incredibly expensive and complex to do so that's the challenge. And I think it's, it's the challenge that new health secretaries don't understand. It's the challenge that people coming in like an NHSX don't understand, even though they're very smart and they think they understand standards and standardization. But the complexity of the health and care IT space is, is enormous. Where do I begin? Where do I begin? Okay, do you want to just elaborate a little bit more, Ian, on how open air uh, adds to this? Yeah. So it's a, it, this is a hard story to tell. I'll, I'll be frank. You know, open air has been on the go for probably 20 years intellectually, and it came out of essentially an academic project. Then it got picked up essentially by industry, and it's a very small part of industry right now. But it's, and it's an idea that's been difficult to tell because it challenges people's perceptions of how you build software um, and how you do standardization. So if we can start with what happens now, Essentially, everybody builds their own app. So if you're a GP system or a GP, you build your own app. If you are a social care or care home system, you build an app. If you're an ophthalmologist, you get somebody to build an app. And of course, within those spaces, you've got different apps. You know, you've got competing apps. So we've got like three or four different GP apps in the UK at the moment. And the deal is that the app, you get user interface, which you'd expect. You get your decision support, your business rules and the app developer builds their own data models and makes their own decisions about terminology. And we say, look, that is the best way to get the best fit for us as professionals or indeed as patients. And that's true. We need these apps to fit the way we work. That is, that is what we need. You know, trying to have one big app that does everything is a disaster. We know it doesn't work. Uh, we know that from the, real, you know, the other world 
the general world that the, the art revolution, the beauty of the art revolution is to let you pick the app that best suits you cognitively, aesthetically, whatever you like. Um, and we, we don't want to lose that in health. But we face this problem of uh, all of these different apps fundamentally are thinking about the world in a different way. Even if they're all ophthalmology apps, they're completely dependent on which ophthalmologist did you speak to and how did they do their work? And have they had actually had any discussions between them? So we, we have this problem of then having to get all of these different apps to talk to each other, given that they think differently. And the way they think is determined by the clinicians who help build them. And as clinicians, we are quite siloed in our thinking. You know, you do things the way your boss told them to do, and that isn't necessarily the same way as your boss. My boss did things differently from your boss, therefore that's how we think about it. And we don't know that. We actually don't realise that we're siloed uh, until we hit, you know, oh, that's not how you do it here. Okay, fine. As humans, we adjust. Computers can't adjust. They have to be told how to how to. Work. So we've got this world where nothing quite joins up. And there's a whole industry, which I'm part of, um, called interoperability, which says, okay, we accept things as they are. Let's come up with um, a whole bunch of agnostic ways that these things can talk to each other. It's kind of like adapters, if you like. You know, you've got your USB to USC adapter or your plug, you know, your EU plug adapter to your UK plug. But it's hugely complicated and expensive to do, and it's taken decades there's a relatively new uh, technology called HR7 Fire, which is making things a lot better, but it's still just touching around the fringes of what needs to be done to get that coherent data. And what we want is something which feels as if it's one system, even if we've got multiple applications. OpenAir says, let's stop doing that. Let's separate the apps from the data. What we need is all that multiplicity of apps, all that energy, the creativity, different user interface, uh, you know, different ways of thinking about the problem. But let's try to have coherent patient-centric data underneath and maintain that patient-centric data in essentially vendor-neutral specialized data stores. Yes, lots of apps, open source, closed source, we don't care. Uh, the technology you build them on, we don't care but let's have the data in a separate layer, maintained and managed in a way that is as coherent as we possibly can make it and is lifelong for the patient and is vendor neutral. So you're not locked into, and technology neutral, because this has to last for the, at least the lifetime of the patient. And that is both intellectually and technically challenging to do. So it's taken quite a while for open air to turn from an interesting idea to something that is actually used for millions of patient records around the world. And we're only just getting to a phase where people are going, you know what, this traditional interoperability idea, we've got to live with it, we're going to make it work as best we can, but maybe it's not going to get us over the line. Let's try to do something a little bit different. Ian, if I understand correctly, because we're going to talk about other things in a moment, but just for me to be clear, um, for the entrepreneur, the innovator, someone developing a new solution, let's say that depends on um, health records, for example. Mm -hmm. When you and I spoke previously, um, it was all about, you know, it's healthy. It's healthy to have 
the variability, as you said earlier as well, variability in the kinds of products that sort of tailor-made to that local setting. So that's fine. So we acknowledge that. Um, however, at least use this framework, or it's like Lego bricks, essentially. So if you are going to be yeah. creating different things, that's fine, so long as they connect together both currently across different health systems so that if I travel to different parts of the health system here in the UK or even internationally they can talk to each other but as you also said so that they're interoperable over time because health you know as as a health organization changes the um, software that they use for example they don't need to destroy all the data and start from scratch right yeah yeah I, so the, 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 this is very pertinent because right now a lot of my work, I'm kind of an open air evangelist, some of this is commercial, but a lot of it is just I think is a good thing to do, is talking to startups, stock, talking to people like yourself that, that you know, have some, some interesting ideas, ideas and saying, look guys, <clears throat> you, your, your inclination will be to build your app, You'll, particularly if it's your know, sort of patient facing or clinician facing apps that they're doing. You'll get into that, you'll get a database expert in, they'll build your data models in the database and you'll do, you'll do your data modeling in a conventional way. Think very carefully before you want to go down that road. There is another approach, which is essentially that you give up that data management aspect. You use the data models that someone else tells you to use. They have to work for you and it's their job to adapt their portfolio of data models to work for your app. There is another world out there where you can still add all of the value that you, you should be doing, whether it's through user interfaces or value add like um, uh, analytics or AI or ML, but don't build your own data models and don't do your own data storage. Use something like this technology and, and OpenAir is probably the start of this. You know, I don't, I don't think OpenAir will be where we are in 20 or 30 years. But I think it's the right approach right now. We know it works. It is proven. We've got, I mean, we've got millions of, of patient records running on this. And it's a kind of no-code data technology. So people like me and you, you know, clinicians, clinical informaticians, we define the data models. We work with our colleagues to define what is an allergy or a blood pressure or an APGAR score or, or you know, a care home data model. Uh, and we apply these to these smart data stores without engineers being involved at all. The engineers, we need the engineers to build the technology that makes this work. But in terms of deploying it and deciding which data models to use, which combination, how it all works together, that's a clinical informatician job, not an engineering job. And it means we can do things fast. We can deploy, like in COVID, you know, we were able to build new COVID-related data models incredibly quickly and get them into the deployment within a matter of a matter of days, actually. Um, and that's very, very powerful because one of the things that we know in this space is that we will fail a lot. We have to keep cycling through new ideas. It's a very unstable environment. Um, so the ability to fail fast is critical. And if you're doing that with conventional technologies, conventional databases, uh, non-standardized models and trying to get the clinical knowledge from, you know, speak to your, you're going to get very siloed views. You will not get rounded views uh, from the, the handful of clinicians that you have access to. Take advantage of, I think this is a new world of standards-based application development rather than just application development. Open Air is not the only game in town, but it's the most mature one at the moment. 
I love it. I do urge you, if you're watching, listening to this, do check out the link to Open Air uh, in the description below. I'm fascinated. I genuinely am. And, and I know I'll be coming to you for all sorts of things in the future, mm -hmm. hopefully. So, um, Ian, let's just take a step back and zoom back. And I remember you told me, but uh, for the sake of our audience, I'd love to hear it again, the story of your wife. And, you know, using that story perhaps could you just share a bit about what the challenges and perhaps the opportunities are for innovation in health informatics yeah so hildy and i had a, an interesting time so um i i met hildy or we got together about 14 15 years ago and uh, she was already she worked for a gp system company she had done for 25 years actually she wasn't clinical and she wasn't tech uh, she had done all sorts of work, but she had become one of the data modelers. She knew her way around GP data, had done all sorts of jobs within that. Very experienced, and her other colleagues in there. And we got we got to know each other through that world. But very soon after we got together, she had a, a, got a diagnosis of breast cancer, and so that's I moved uh, home. Um, we we set up homes together. Thankfully, she she came through her initial um, uh, surgery and chemo very well, uh, and she remained very well for for a number of years. But it did bring home to us um, the gaps in the service, uh, and I can say without fault, uh, our local DGH um, in Kettering, we got fantastic service. You know, we, it, immensely great standards of care. Uh, you know, the people involved were superb, absolutely no, no criticisms. But it was very apparent that the communications were difficult. Uh, you know, making sure that things happened in a timely way um, was tricky. Um, and it was okay, the first time round it was all right, because, well, we weren't so conscious of it, I guess. But then, what, five years ago, uh, it became clear that Hildy had had the recurrence of a breast cancer. And it, we knew it wasn't going to be good news. Uh, it turned out to be worse news than we expected. She had quite extensive spread. Uh, and in that, she said, you know what, I'm going to write a blog. Uh, because I, I, it, it was weird because what she wanted to write about was the thing that was essentially our fault. Because we were both informaticians. And by this stage, she had come to work for me in, in my little company, Fresh Air. And we were working around the world doing all sorts of interesting projects, working on GP systems, on hospital systems, on cancer systems. We also worked together on modelling the respect end of life care uh, data set, which was particularly interesting because at that time, at point, she knew she had essentially a terminal illness. And, you know, we talked about it and laughed about it with the Resuscitation Council people. There was a, a certain irony of it, although at that point she was still relatively well. Um, but, it, you know, during those last few months, she said, you know what, I'm going to start writing a blog about this, uh, which she called Chemo Hildy. And I, she was a really good writer, but it, it wasn't about complaining about people or complaining. It was if we were complaining about anybody, it was complaining about us as informaticians that we had not helped our clinical colleagues solve this problem of how you use technology to communicate across this really complicated patient journey of many, many different professionals, many different services in hospital, you know, pseudo hospital like the chemotherapy suite, 
uh, you know, how do you get access to lymphedema services? Once you've got your lymphedema prescription, how do you get that enabled, which turned out to be a real nightmare? So Hildy wrote about all of these things. Uh, and one of my favorite titles is MDT. Uh, is it multidisciplinary teams or is it might delay things? Uh, and this was all about the current wonky rules around how you get MDT teams set up. Uh, you know, it, you, you have to read the blog to understand it. It's just like death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's not that anybody's doing anything terribly, terribly wrong or the system is doing it terribly, terribly badly, but they all add up. So what might be a two week delay ends up being an eight week delay. Um, for nobody's fault except the system. It is a systemic failure. And that eight weeks, it, I, I don't think it would have made any difference to Hildy's outcome, but you know, it, it feels like it at the time. And we can and should do so much better. Um, sadly, she died coming on for three years ago, um, but we had you know, a fantastic journey. Uh, the cancer didn't stop our, um, stop our time together at all. Uh, we, 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 we had a lot of fun along the way. And in fact, it probably made us reach out and live life to its fullest extent, knowing what the outcome might be. Wow. Um, so thanks for sharing that, Ian. I, you, you have shared the, the blog link. Are you happy for me to put that? Yeah, uh, okay, I'll, I'll do that after, right after this. So um, it's, it's stories like this that I, I hear from people from all sorts of backgrounds, whether they're doctors or uh, mm -hmm informatician or anyone really doesn't matter but it's going through the journey yourself that you, you start seeing things that other people have become uh blind to not on purpose but it's just you don't you need someone from from the outside we, so. we all we all have limited bandwidth even though we're aware of it there's very little that we can do it's not our job what is my job now um so i do take it uh, more more seriously and just just to give you an example of how we hope this world might be a little bit better with this it's not an open air thing we call it open platform so the idea instead of every application managing its own data and then shuffling it about people talk about the data following the patient which is a good thing it's actually very hard to do what we'd rather do is that the patient data stays in one place and the apps follow the, the apps talk to the data so we've been involved in a uh, a proof of concept uh, around end of life care wishes and, and to what you might call advanced care wishes. So typically that would be several applications and we wanted to have a patient application and several professional applications uh, all talking to each other. And traditionally that would be everybody does their own application and we come up with some kind of messages that we can move between them. So if data is collected in one place, it gets shuttled to the next application and then back and whatever. In theory, that might work, but it never has. Uh, and it's still struggling. With, with this project, we adopted this open platform approach where there is a data store that all of these applications talk to, including a patient application. So there's a patient application that is reading and writing essentially to the professional data store. We call this co-produced a co-produced health record. There's lots of ongoing discussions about, you know, to what extent patients, they, should, they have complete read access for one thing. Everything that professionals are writing, we might put, there's, again, we're still in the middle of this, you know, this is we're pioneering it. We might, maybe if somebody says, patient doesn't know what their prognosis is for whatever reason, we hide that data from the app. 
Similarly, there are you know, interesting discussions about what happens if the patient updates their part of the, you know, the about me part of the record, which they're allowed to do, and they say, I've changed my mind about resuscitation. How does that find its way into, if you like, the more professional part? So there are real safety issues and, and concerns. But we think we're coming at it from the right approach, which is let's be liberal in our thinking and then accept that there are some realities. But the point is there is no real interoperability here. I, I, I'm starting to call this infraoperability because there's an infrastructure that allows this data to be held next to the patient and for all of these apps to run around that. It's like having the sun at the centre of your universe or the patient at the centre of the universe. Um, there's a guy called Bob Wachter, who some of you may know, very eminent, really lovely guy as well. He's a great talker. So he did a report a few years ago for the NHS, and he said, we need to bake in interoperability. And Bob's a very smart guy, but that is a really dumb thing to say. It's like, you know, you cannot bake interoperability in. You, you need interoperability because you ain't baked anything in the first place. This is baking in infraoperability, and it's removing the need for interoperability if we get it right. And that's what makes this exciting for me. I liked what you said about, uh, you know, having the data follow you, but actually it's the apps that follow you rather than data. And, and I couldn't the apps follow your data, follow your data. And I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I, in the world of public health, we talk about this often, which is, you know, it's good to dip into a, the single source of the truth um, with your analyses or whatever, and then present those in at any point in time, you can always go back to what the original was. And when I was doing my PhD, it was the same, uh, or time at the CDC, CDC in the States, it was the same. It was, let's have the core data as live and single source of the truth. And then any analyses can be done on top of that. It's the same concept that I'm hearing from you. So I'm really curious about your take on the B word, blockchain. <laughs> All right, so I am not a blockchain expert but I can be pretty confident say blockchain has some uses within the healthcare sector, but they're not around patient data. They're around potentially, you know, proving who you are. They're around potentially proving who staff are. Uh, they're probably useful in uh, things like, um, you know, a, a drug, uh, what's the word? Uh, drug identification. So in, in pharmaceutical chains, you know, making sure you don't have dodgy drugs, uh, you know, making supply sure chain, supply mm. chain. Mm. Uh, I, I can be pretty confident and say that in terms of anything to do with patient data, other than a thin skin around the outside, nothing. To, it offers absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's really interesting. No, it's good to it's good to hear these things from someone like you that's living and breathing these and you're not working in a silo you're working internationally with all these people thinking about these things so really curious on that note what are the you mentioned some of them at the beginning but what are some of the common mistakes you see entrepreneurs make when it comes to um health records and maybe you know cl clinical decision support systems so it all, it all comes back to the complexity of the space. The main challenge is people don't realise, and it's not complicated. One part of health team, which is different, inherently different. It's just, it's got all, all of the gnarly things that everybody has in their industries. We've got all of them and in spades. 
Um, so first of all, they don't understand that what we do and what, what, what happens in Scotland is not the same as happens in England. What happens in Yorkshire is not the same as happens in London. And it's definitely completely different from what happens in Denmark. And it's incredibly different from what happens in the US. But one of the mistakes that people make, I think, is to regard the US as the model for the way that healthcare works across the world, when in fact it's, com it's a complete outlier. Now, of course, you know, we all know that in some ways that the US is the leading healthcare system in the world if you're just looking for narrow definitions of quality. Um, it is without a doubt, you know, the big US companies, particularly in hospital settings, you know, they rule the roost, the Epics, the Cerners, the Meditechs. Right now, they rule the roost across the world, at least across the, the developed world. Um, and people sort of see them as the arbiter of, of the way things are, which is probably true, but the way things must be, which I don't believe to be true. And you're starting to see that pushback in Europe. Um, you know, Stockholm has just had a fairly long discussion about whether to go down the, the mega route and have decided not to do so. Um, Catalonia, as a region, has decided to go down the platform route. Wales, Scotland, Finland, uh, Norway, many others are starting to say, you know what, um, this isn't necessarily the way ahead. So don't use US healthcare as your model for the rest of the world. It's important, don't get me wrong, you know, and obviously a lot of health tech companies start in that space, so they have to understand it, but it's not necessarily how health and healthcare works across the world. Um, do not under, do not underestimate the, the difficulty of getting good quality data. Um, first of all, the standardization isn't there. Uh, the ability to share data, even with my lovely open air world, we're still a long way from getting you know, good quality data. If you're working in other sectors, even though HL7 Fire is held up to be, you know, it's going to solve all our problems and it's a good thing and will solve many problems. It is touching a tiny, tiny fraction of what is out there and needs to be done. Uh, and even once you get the data flowing, the quality of the data is very poor because we don't, you know, we give people quite crappy systems to work with. Uh, they are demotivated, they are incredibly busy. They don't have the time and inclination to, and they don't understand why it's important to fill out that box on their form to make it easier for, for the rest. So we don't we don't have an understanding that we this is a shared endeavor and that it's important it, filling out this box for you might not be that important but it's probably important for the patient down the track so please do it right so yeah um and i think the other is internationalization people don't understand that the terminologies that you use in the uk are different from the ones we use in sweden and denmark and elsewhere and that the legislation is all different. And in particular, the privacy legislation and the privacy norms are all different. So you are going to encounter all of these things again and again and again and again. You're going to burn a huge amount of resource building integrations uh, because every hospital is different, every region is different, every country is different, every message is different. Wow. Okay. So I've got two last questions for you, Ian. Um, first off, it's a personal one to you, as in if you were going to launch your own next health startup, 
what you know whether it's mm. part of open air or something completely different from your personal experience as a gp you, you know you don't practice anymore as a mm. gp in informatics anywhere in the healthcare experience uh, and setting what problem would you like to solve I, I would well I, i've just failed so i've just had a startup fail we're just about to close it down and i still think it's the right idea and if i was a younger guy i would try it again um and that it is about delivering those platform services as a, you know building the platform idea on the cloud as a service but with all of these added values so we'll do the integrations for you we'll build the the allergy model well you can build your own if you like but here's here's one we've done already we just need to seriously decomplexify this space for startups mm -hmm. and new entrants. We need to take some of this back in as infrastructure. Now, whether that's private infrastructure or public, the more that public, the better, I think. But there's a place for companies to deliver this, this kind of thing. You know, we've done a lot of the hard yards in term, terms of these integrations, um, maybe some of the decision support. We'll show you how to hook up to a terminology. So we'll do all that for you. So you can just build your, whatever it, great idea you've had, you can build that on top. I still think there's, you know, there's a business to be built uh, in that that would do a huge amount of, of work. But like all of these platform plays, you need to persuade people to come on your side. You know, this is what, you know, the Uber guys have been doing. It's what the Amazon have been doing for 20 years. And only now, you know, they're starting to flip it and turn into profit because it takes a long time to persuade the market. So if I was a young guy and had some interested VCs, I would be saying, you've got to, this, is, this, will, this will reap dividends. Okay, if certainly reap dividends socially, uh, it will do a good thing. I think somebody could make money out of it, but you have to be prepared to be in it for the long game, just like Uber, just like uh, Amazon, just like the people who are prepared to, it's not a fast buck industry. So now just based on that experience of you, I mean, it's always good to hear from those who have failed in a startup because that's the more common experience. Um, but whether, you know, what would be your tips to the entrepreneur watching, uh, especially those at, from outside the healthcare sector who want to pivot in, what would be your top tips for those entrepreneurs and startups? Ah, wow. Um, be prepared to spend a long time learning. Uh, you know, even going back to the national programme, uh, the failed, it wasn't a complete failure, the, the, the English national IT programme, which happened, what, 15 years ago. What happened was Tony Blair said, look, we'll take on these really smart guys. And they were very smart guys from Microsoft and whatever, you know, there's no, no doubting. But it took them five years to understand healthcare in the UK, at which time they were starting to be really productive, by which time all the money had been spent. So you, if you want to make a big play in this, you have to be in it for a while, uh, unless you're really, really lucky. You know, you might, you might get, you know, you might get a fast buck if you hit the right space at the right time. But basically, this is not for quick in, quick out. You've got to, you've got to embed yourself in this world for a while and build up, build up expertise. Because no matter how smart your team are going in, unless they've got you know embedded time in this world they will struggle to get up to speed yeah 
I appreciate it. Look, uh, I really appreciate your time, Ian. I will, uh, I've added already the, the link to Open Air and I'll add the blog as well from your wife down in the description below. Um, before I come back to you with any final words, if you are watching and listening and still with us for this past 45 minutes or so, thanks so much for, for staying with us. Uh, if you are an entrepreneur or a startup contemplating entering this complicated world that is health and, and care, don't let us scare you away. I think we need more people like you helping us out because there's enough problems in the health sector to deal with. Oh, yeah. And please do come and speak to Ian, to myself, if you want to, um, you know, hash out some of those ideas that you have before you, you dive in with some of your um, time and resources. So do check out the link in the description below for further details of how to reach out to me too. Ian, any final words uh, from you? No, just uh, just to back up what you said, you know, uh, what one of the things I do like about Open Air is it's not a pure open source play. There's open IP at the heart of it. Uh, the models that we build, we, we distribute, the specifications are open, but it's deliberately constructed to allow people to innovate above and below that IP, whether it's at the sort of low level tech data store level, whether it's on add-on tooling, and definitely in the application layer, it's deliberately set up to encourage that because I, I, my experience started in the public sector, so it went into, you know, pure private sector. It's that balance that I think will deliver what we need. We need a bit of both. So yes, please. Uh, I don't want to discourage people, but be aware what you're getting into. Absolutely. <laughs> Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure and uh, hopefully welcome you back on the show in the near future. So thanks so much for joining me and uh, see you next time. Take care. Learn more at The Entrepreneur's Doctor. www.entrepreneurs.doctor. Better health starts here.